It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is not as simple as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened up so many more doors. The show is called The The Deal. Deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the new and improved Cup of Cubby Blue, proudly affiliated with the Fans First Sports Network, where you are hopefully subscribed for a ton of great Cubs content. If you like the shows, leave us a five-star review and a rating to help other people find us. We have still got all of the series-by-series updates, plus the bleacher banter that you love. I'm Sarah Sanchez. I write about the Cubs and their cases for being buyers or maybe sellers at the trade deadline and more for Bleed Cubby Blue. Danny is getting ready for our second half preview of the Sun Ranto show, which you will not want to miss. It's at eight o'clock on Thursday night if you're listening to this before that. However, I am all good because I am joined by the one and only Gabrielle Starr. Gabrielle is the senior Red Sox reporter for the Boston Herald and founder of Girl at the Game. I have been dying to have her on the show for ages, and I'm thrilled she could join me to preview this matchup of two historic franchises that have inexplicably decided they would like to behave like the Tampa Bay Rays with fewer wins. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. I feel like we've talked about this for about a year and a half, and now it just happens to be the perfect time. I know. We've talked about this forever. We've been Twitter friends for, I don't know, the way you are, right? Like girls who talk about baseball on Twitter, uh, and it's the best. And I'm so stoked that we get to preview this Cubs Red Series, Red Sox Series, not Reds. The Reds are better than both the Cubs and the Red Sox. As we all drew it up, you know, three months ago, right? <laughs> definitely, definitely my prediction for the uh, for the division. <laughs> yeah, most of my predictions have been thrown in the trash can, but that's okay. Uh, we are just over the midpoint of the season. The Cubs finished uh, right before the All-Star break strong, taking two of three from the Yankees and the Bronx for the first time ever. And thank God they have finally won a game at Yankee Stadium because that was really getting embarrassing. But 
this team is still pretty mid and frankly, so are the Red Sox. So we're going to start today with a bit of a just sort of overview of where these two franchises are and how they got there. In the second half, we'll do the series preview, three games kicking off at historic Wrigley Field on Friday evening. But let's just start with the Red Sox. Gabrielle, who is this team? You know, it's funny because this team, like, yes, they are the last place team in their division. But when you look at them compared to any other last place team or even most fourth place, some third place teams in other divisions, this is a good team by comparison. Like, this is not your typical last place in the division team. The Red Sox have a solid winning record. They finished the first half pretty strong. I believe they have the best record in the majors since June 14th. Uh, they have some players who definitely should have been all-star reserves. Like this is, this is not your mother's Oakland A's team of the American League East. This is a team that plays in the hardest division. I'm not making excuses for them, but factually speaking, the American League East, you know, they call it the beast of the East for a reason. It is an impossible division most years. I remember 2018, the Red Sox won, uh, I think it was 108 regular season games, something like that, 107. They win their division. The Yankees also had a 100-plus win season. The Rays win 90-something games, and they do not make the postseason. If they had been in the National League, they would have been at least a wildcard team. I think they would have won at least one of those divisions that year. I mean, the Rays in 2018 had a better record than the Atlanta Braves the year that they won the World Series two years ago. So... This division is just absurd. Um, the Red Sox, you know, again, no excuses, but they've had some bad luck with injuries. They've had some absurdly bad play against the National League for no legitimate reason. And then they're just playing in a tough division where, you know, the Rays started off really, really good. The Orioles have been great. Um, and they are really close to kind of making some progress if they can sustain the success of the end of their first half. You know, they're only, I think, one game behind the Yankees in the wild card race. Yeah, I think that they were one game back when I looked at the standings, too. Uh, the Cubs are not that team, for the record. The Red Sox would definitely have a sizable lead on the Cubs for the division. So let's be very clear. The Cubs uh, <laughs> are five games under 500, and that is after finishing the before the all-star break stronger than many people expected with those games at Yankee stadium, splitting the series against the Brewers. I honestly just think this team, and, and I know some of my listeners are going to get mad about this and I kind of get some slack about it on Twitter all the time. This team is a 74 to 77 win collection of dudes. That is what all the projection systems saw them as. That's what Pakoda saw them as. That's what Fangraph saw them as. That's what they're on track to do. That's what they're still doing. I just feel like, yes, there are moments where they look okay. There are moments where Justin Steele has had a great season. Marcus Stroman has had a great season. The starting pitching has been so good. We'll get into it and talk about it a little bit more. And also, they go through stretches where they just cannot score. The bullpen at times has been abysmal. It is exactly what you expect from a team that's going to hover around 500 and probably sell at the deadline. And I, I think that that is who this Cubs team is. I would love them to show signs of like a – Winning eight, eight out of 10 and going on a little bit of a run here and making that decision harder for Jed Hoyer. And I just don't know how much I expect it. I will say they did have some all-stars, you know, Justin Steele 
did a great job, threw a scoreless inning on 10 pitches for the National League. Uh, neither Marcus Stroman nor Dansby Swanson played in the game. Swanson's dealing with a heel contusion and Marcus Stroman, I think, frankly, just was like, I want the rest and I'm not flying to Seattle. Like, there's nothing wrong with him. He just decided not to go. Um, but you mentioned some guys who should have been reserves for the AL. Who are some Red Sox who have been surprising in a good way that were definitely not part of that team that should have been? So I think the, the biggest two would probably have to be Masataki Yoshida and Alex Verdugo. I mean, Masataki Yoshida is hitting 316. I know batting average in this day and age is a very broad stat, but the fact of the matter is you're ha- you're more than halfway through the season. The guy is hitting 316. He ended the first half with, I think, an eight or nine game hitting streak of having at least two hits in every single game, which is now the longest streak of any player in the majors. He was tied with Julio Rodriguez and Anthony Santander. He broke that tie. He now has the longest streak of the season. Like this is a guy where for one thing, everyone was crapping on the Red Sox for giving him how much money and how many years they gave him. The guy's hitting 316. Okay. He's been one of the most consistent hitters in the game. He's only struck out 36 times. The whole season, the whole first half of the season, he has 27 walks and 36 strikeouts. The guy has been very, very solid defensively, where a lot of people were saying, oh, we don't think he's a good defender. He's been very solid, which is saying a lot, considering the green monster is like right there behind him every single game or half of the games. Mastaki Yoshida, definitely making a case. And Alex Verdugo, factually has been one of, if not the best right fielders defensively in the American League this year. He is hitting 290, like not a big slugger, but has been extremely, extremely clutch uh, until the very end of the first half. He was leading the team in doubles, and I believe leading the league in doubles. Uh, You know, the guy has been really good. Um, He's been making a gold glove case all season long. He made his all-star case. It was frankly pretty surprising when he wasn't a reserve, especially when several players dropped out due to injury or weren't going to play. You know, I didn't, I didn't think he was going to overtake Aaron judge in the voting in the first round. Uh, And I wrote that. I said, you know, the guy's going to have a pretty hard time knocking Aaron Judge off the pedestal, even though he's been hurt for, you know, more than a month. But is he a legit contender to sub in or at the very least be a reserve? Yes. And when more and more players dropped out, it was kind of outrageous. And you see that, too, from the fact that players at the All-Star game from other teams were like, how is Alex Verdugo not here? (laughs) And it's, you know, I think that there's something to be said, and I'm curious to your opinion on this, about the idea that players who are playing for teams that aren't in a good spot, per se, do not get the individual recognition that they deserve. I think in 2019, you know, Xander Bogarts and Rafael Devers heading into the All-Star series were like the All-Star break were two of the best hitters, not only in their league, but in all of baseball. And I don't think either of them was the starter at their position, despite being significantly as good, if not significantly better than the players who did start at their respective positions that year. You know why? Because the Red Sox in 2019 were not a very good baseball team. And by that, I mean, by Red Sox standards, still finishing above 500 at the end of the year is considered not good enough. But, 
Yeah, I think the two of them, and then as much as I think Henley Jansen has been phenomenal, the fact that Chris Martin was not an all-star because he is not a closer and not a starter, but kind of the setup man is outrageous. I mean, he has a one five seven ERA over 28 and two-thirds innings, and he has been lights out. He has given up five earned runs all season, one homer, and he has issued three walks and one unintentional walk. He's issued three walks the whole year. Former Cub, Chris Martin. Yes, we are well, Cub, we're Chris totally Martin. familiar. <laughs> I mean, he's quite literally like the, what, what did he come into this year with? Like the career best walk rate among pitchers with at least two or 300 innings pitched. Like the guy doesn't issue as like a walk ever. 30 yeah. games, he's issued three walks. I'm pretty sure that the Cubs turned Chris Martin into Zach McKinstry last year. Uh, and Zach McKinstry came over and was not very good with the Cubs, but has been pretty good for the Detroit Tigers. I mean, he is a legit middle relief option and his numbers are stellar. And I totally agree with you that those middle relief guys who are, are unbelievably good get shafted by the way all-star selections are done. Uh, you mentioned Verdugo and Yoshida. I totally agree. Those are huge oversights as far as I'm concerned for the all-star game. I think both of them are excellent. They're going to be making an appearance on our hot hitters uh, list later. And I, I worry a lot about both of those guys. I ever do go on a bunch of fantasy baseball teams. I feel like he's just always solid, but this year he's gone from solid to exceptional. Like he has really stepped up. There was a little bit of a beef. If I recall between him and Alex Cora, he got benched for a game and Cora wanted him to step it up a little bit more. And Verdugo has been nails ever since. Yeah. So Cora, it's interesting because everybody thinks that like, and by everyone, I mean a lot of some media members, lots of fans are like, Cora is so hard on Alex, but he's not hard on, you know, anybody else. I think in my opinion, he values Verdugo so much that he just takes it extremely seriously when he feels like Verdugo needs a push and because he knows that that resonates with Verdugo, people need to be managed differently. Like some people do really, really well with kind of, I'm not going to say negative reinforcement, but kind of, you know, some people work better under that kind of pressure under that kind of, you know, tough love, you know, benching mentality and other people do not. And last fall, the first day, you know, at the like the end of the season, the last game, after the last game, Cora gets asked, who's the player that needs to take the biggest step forward next year? And without hesitating, he said Alex Verdugo. And at the time, Verdugo said that, you know, that bothered him. It pissed him off, but it really motivated him. And the results are clear this year. And I think that the same thing is true now. You're just seeing that he is the kind of player that Cora knows he responds to this kind of managing and you know, not everybody, that's not the same for everyone. I'm not saying, you know, that I'm not saying this in regards to any other player. This is not me saying, you know, because you and I know on Twitter, someone's going to be like, Oh, so she's saying that he won't do this for other players. I'm saying specifically for Verdugo, this seems to be the kind of player manager relationship and, you know, training, working, you know, relationship that works 
best for maximizing Verdugo's potential and abilities because, yes, the results are clear. Um, I think that's exactly right. And I want to go back a little bit to what you were talking about with the record and the AL East and just how tough it is looking at this for one second. You know, if the Red Sox played in the NL Central, which I will fully admit is the second weakest division in baseball, and frankly, the only reason they're not the weakest division in baseball is because the AL Central exists, which is just yes. honestly like, what is even going on in the AL Central? Does the anybody... Red Sox would be winning that <laughs> division easily. Like, the, the, the team in first place in that division is exactly 500. And they would, if the season ended today, the Red Sox would not make the postseason. And the Guardians would win. Their, they wouldn't be a wild card game team. They would win their division. And to me, like, I'm not looking for, for cutsies. I'm not looking for, you know, a free pass for the Red Sox. But factually speaking, when you have one division that is so, so bad, and consistently most years, the Central just isn't very good overall, top to bottom. And then you have a division like the AL East where it is consistently a bloodbath every single year. I think that at a certain point, that is actually detrimental to the game and unfair to teams because you are factually better than five teams in a whole division. And you are a winning team. And you, by virtue of the division that you're placed in, are not, like, that is unfair to the Red Sox. And it is also overly fair and, like, kind of coddling. It's basically, in my way of thinking, like, the American League East is the pitch clock. And the American League Central is the the shift restrictions. You're telling hitters oh, you can't beat the shift? Don't worry. We'll just make the infielders move less, honey. Don't worry. We got you. But with pitchers, you're telling them, oh, you don't like pitching faster? Tough luck. Speed it up or you're going to be detrimental to your team. I don't see how that is fair from a logical standpoint. And I would be saying that about any other team. If it was the Rays, if it was the Orioles, if it was even the Yankees, I'd be like, this is kind of ridiculous that you can have a winning record and be not even a wild card team, let alone have a chance to win your division, but another team can be doing basically the bare minimum of keeping of treading water and come away with a division title. I think it's bogus. Yeah, it is kind of ridiculous. I mean, to put it in perspective, if the Red Sox were in the NL Central Uh, They would be two games out of first place. They'd be in third place ahead of the Cubs. They'd be about five games ahead of where the Cubs are right now. And they'd be two games out as opposed to the Cubs seven games out. So just kind of putting that in perspective from a competitive standpoint. You know, you mentioned uh, Verdugo and Yoshida as guys who kind of got shafted by the all-star selection process. I am going to throw my hat in the ring for Christopher Morrell, who really has 15 home runs in two months of playing time. He had a whole month where he was in AAA for hashtag reasons where he had 13 home runs. Like the dude has 28 home runs in professional baseball on the season at the halfway point. He has slashed his K rate. He has increased his walk rate. He has a WRC plus in the 140s. And the only reason he wasn't on the ballot and didn't get a shot to even be voted in, let alone go in as a reserve, is because Jed Hoyer decided he had to be in AAA for some reason. And I just... It is obnoxious to me that that's a thing that can hinder a young player's opportunities. And it's also one of these things. I am keeping an eye on Christopher Morrell in the second half because the only part of his game that I worry about is the K rate. And frankly, if he has truly turned that around, 
that dude is everything that people wanted Javier Baez to be. And I am here for it. He hits loud home runs. Of the home runs that he's hit so far, I think 11 of them have gone more than 400 feet. And it's easy power. It's just the most insane swing that I've ever seen. And I'm so excited about it. Uh, the one thing Christopher Morrell cannot do very well, though, is play third base. The whole third base situation for the Cubs has been a disaster in the first half. Their best third baseman is Nick Madrigal, who is not a third baseman. And we have taken to calling him on the show Nicky Five Steps because he has to get a running start to throw the ball across the diamond. And look, he doesn't make a ton of airs out there, but it's obvious he doesn't have the arm for the position. It is one of the funniest things I've ever seen in my life. Uh, what is the most surprising development in a bad way for the Red Sox because ours is definitely third base <laughs> yeah I mean our third base is pretty solid we have this guy named Rafael Devers I don't know if you've heard of him yeah, great. <laughs> another like low-key all-star potential I mean he does have 20 homers by his standards not the best first half but I will say like 20 homers is pretty solid especially when you're looking at Whit Merrifield, who's hit like five or six all season, and you're like, so he's an all-star and Raphael Devers isn't? All right, cool. Sure, sure, sure. Um, I I mean, without a doubt, the biggest issue for this team, the biggest kind of bad development is the middle infield situation. Um, you know, you have... No Xander Bogarts, obviously, forever. Goodbye. Best of luck. Um, thanks for the memories. Class act, unofficial captain, just a stellar, stellar, stellar player in person. Um, you know, Unforgivable so on Heim Bloom, by the way. Not like Xander took the bag. He got paid. And yeah. That's, oh, no. No, no shade to Xander. But I, I that's players the type of thing. Like Heim Bloom dead to me. Players getting paid is... Like, you're never going to hear a bad word from me about it unless you're talking like Jacoby Ellsbury abandoning the Red Sox. Um, but, you know, karma. I, I want to say quickly, though, with regards to Xander, a lot of people say, oh, well, you know, he, like, the Red Sox shouldn't have given him 11 years, $240 million. I mean, nobody needs $240 million to be alive. Like, that's that's not a thing. If you need that much money, then you're – I don't know what you're doing. And 11 years would have been crazy. He will be in his early 40s when that contract ends. The issue is that they went to Trevor Story first and they asked Xander to help them recruit his own replacement. And he did it because he's a classy guy. And only then did they turn around and be like, hey, are you interested in adding another year and 30 million onto your contract? Which is just a real big middle finger to a guy who not only initiated a team-friendly extension in 2019 said I want to be here and I'm willing to take less money to make it happen which as a Scott Boris client like Scott Boris clients don't do that and Scott Boris looked so unhappy at that press conference that it makes me laugh to this day not only did he do that but he then helped recruit a guy knowing that the guy could replace him and knowing that he had better numbers than that guy and was healthier than that guy consistently over his career, was a proven postseason player with two World Series rings, multiple silver sluggers, multiple all-star appearances, team leader, the guy that all of the top prospects wanted to learn from. And after all of that, you turn around and say, hey, we're only going to offer you like a year and 30 mil, but thanks for helping us get your replacement. 
Like, if you're hating on Xander Bogarts, you do not get to call yourself a real Red Sox fan because that guy played hurt for years. That guy led this team. That guy was always accountable, was always in front of his locker. The night that he got his Padres contract, he was reaching out to media members in Boston, myself included, thanking them for how they covered his career. Like, I got a message from him. At like one in the morning, Boston time, he was in Phoenix being like, hey, I just want to thank you for everything that you, the way you covered my career. I really appreciate it. I read so much of your stuff and it meant a lot to me. Like that's the kind of guy Xander Bogarts is. The fact that other teams, including the Red Sox, didn't see the value in that enough. Like I don't really have anything to say about that. I will say that I've been told by people within the organization that they do regret the order in which they went about these things. Because if you do approach Xander Bogarts before Trevor Story last spring, you might have a different outcome. The issue is how long they waited, the way that they approached him, and the amount of money. And the fact that they didn't learn from doing the same thing with Mookie Betts, the same thing with John Lester, is frankly kind of appalling to me, especially when you had for the last year, David Ortiz, Pedro Martinez, all of these guys around the league, other teams, managers, and you know executives being like, you have to keep this guy. You have to keep Bogarts and Devers. Devers, like it, it, it's frankly like, well, what are you paying Pedro and Poppy to be special advisors then? If you're just going to be like, thanks, cool. Like if David Ortiz is using his Hall of Fame media availability that week to advocate for the Red Sox signing two other players, that seems pretty important, I think. You know, it's a weekend about him and instead he's doing that. But, yeah, so you have no Bogarts. Trevor Story has missed the entire first half. He had uh, internal brace procedure, which is like Tommy John light. Um, he is hopefully going to be starting a rehab assignment, like, at you know, before the end of the month, hoping to be, you know, playing for the Sox by early August. Um, and I want to be clear, like, the Xander thing should have no bearing on Trevor. Trevor is great. Good, like really good player, really great clubhouse guy, really nice, real like wonderful. And I feel very badly for him that his time in Boston is colored by the Bogart situation. Cause I don't want anyone to think like, Oh, this is like a slight on him. Every player deserves to get paid. Every player has to think about their careers and their contracts. It's just about the way the Red Sox handled it with regard to Xander not with regards to Trevor, because, you know. So what has the middle infield situation for the Red Sox been in the absence of, I mean, y'all don't have a shortstop right now. So Kike Hernandez leads the American League and prob I think leads, the, leads all of baseball in errors. Um, he's no longer really playing shortstop. Uh, you've also had a lot of injuries, which is another issue that, you know, obviously you can't really foresee. But then again, going back to Xander for two seconds, the guy was healthy like every single year. And even when he wasn't healthy, he was playing hurt. People were knocking him last year, but he had more doubles, you know, by like mid-September than he did in the year before. And he played hurt for about two months after colliding with Verdugo in about, I think, May. His shoulder was all messed up. His swing was messed up. He was getting injections in his shoulder. He like couldn't find it. And he heated up down the stretch. I mean, he was a he was a contender for the batting title as late as, you know, the, like third week of September. And people are like, oh, well, he wasn't good. No, he played hurt for the entire for most of the season. Uh, so you had Pablo Reyes. They acquired him from the athletics. 
He's been a solid defender. He's not really a hitter, but he also got hurt. Yu Chang, great defender, got hurt, had a broken bone. I think he broke his hamate, had to have surgery, and then his rehab was prolonged. Christian Arroyo, I think, had a hamstring injury. So you've had such a cobbled together, like, mess of a middle infield for basically the entire season. I mean, the fact that this team has a winning record with the middle infield that it's had is honestly pretty impressive. Um, But that is definitely their weak spot. The issue is, you know, with the upcoming trade deadline, how much would you really do for that? Because you have a farm system stacked with middle infield talent and you do have stories supposed to come back, you know, right around the trade deadline, right after it. So you're kind of in this weird state where it's like, well, how much do you really want to give up to fortify middle infield when you have that kind of talent, you know, basically knocking at the door in AAA and AA? I mean, when Keith Law's prospect rankings, like farm system rankings came out before the season, he was like, I don't really think there's a single starting pitcher in that entire farm system, but their middle infield talent is absurd you know, you got Marcelo Meyer, you've got Nick York, you've got Blaze Jordan just got promoted. You've got so many good middle infield prospects that it's almost, and you had Emmanuel Valdez debut this year. You had David Hamilton debut, David Hamilton set. Uh, I believe it was an organizational record, but it might've just been a double A Portland record. He stole 70 bases last year. Just casual. You know, Trevor Story last year led the led the Boston Red Sox with 13 stolen bases. David, Ham- David Hamilton, casual 70 stolen bases. I think that's probably more, I'm just assuming, than the entire 2022 Red Sox Major League team combined. I think it's a safe estimate. Uh, so you do have, you have a lot of talent. Um, so yeah, middle infield. And then, of course, you know, Chris Sale, Tanner Houck. You've just had some really bad starting pitching injury. I mean, they lost Hauk, Sale, and Whitlock within a month of each other. And they still have a winning record at the break. And that, again, is also incredibly impressive. Yeah, when I asked this question, I was sure you were going to bring up starting pitching, but I'd forgotten that the middle infield is cobbled together with, like, duct tape and shoestrings. (laughs) And that's putting it politely, I would say. Uh, we're going to take a quick break for our sponsors, but on the flip side, we're going to talk about the specific series that is going to kick off at Wrigley field on a rare night game, Friday night, a seven o'clock central night game, um, tomorrow, but first a quick break. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not uh, as simple you know, I, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many you know, more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. 
Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. And we are back. So the Red Sox and Cubs have this wildly symmetrical history. Uh, they are 12 and 12 facing off each, against each other in the regular season all time. They are six and six at home and six and six away. Like the Cubs and Red Sox have this very equal history against each other. The one time they met in the postseason was the pandemic shortened season of the original Spanish flu. Uh, and the Red Sox won that World Series four games to two. Uh, they've never met in the postseason since then. I am hoping that that will happen at some point in my lifetime because they're my two favorite teams. And I think it would be absolutely Incredible. Uh, Josh Winkowski is going to get another look at the ballpark that he called stock standard, as in Wrigley Field, which got a lot of that got a lot of reaction from the Chicago media. Honestly, I I just have to say, as a Cubs and Red Sox fan, Wrigley Field and Fenway Park are the two best parks in baseball. It is not close. No one else is in the conversation. So I think Winkowski was trying to get like a little bit of hometown love off of that, and I just think he showed off a little bit. <laughs> I've never been to a game at Wrigley. I have been to Wrigley. Um, my dad grew up in Boston and then moved to the Midwest, and two of his three sisters ended up living in Chicago. So I have spent a lot of time there, um, and I was going to go to the Red Sox series at Wrigley in 2020. Uh, I am of the belief, and maybe this is just because I am not good with change, but I am of the belief that the older ballparks are vastly better, and that might just be because of the history but I, I mean, like, I'm a kid where I asked my parents when I was in fifth grade if I could go to Ebbets Field. And then they had to break the news to me that it was no longer there. And the next time we were in New York, we actually drove to the Ebbets Field apartments to go and see where it was. And if I could go to any other ballpark, it would probably be Scheib, but like Scheib in the like 1910s not like Scheib in the depressing Phillies renting it era of like the late 30s because I I just think these ballparks were beautiful I think that they were unique I think that they really cared and it's just it's better it's better in every way I mean the quirks that you get from a game at Wrigley Field or at Fenway Park are unlike anything else you'll see from another baseball team in the league right like you've got the green monster in Fenway because you had to park a ballpark in the middle of a neighborhood and there was nowhere else for that wall to go. So you just had to make it super tall to try to make it accommodate things, right? Like at Wrigley Field, you have this gorgeous brick wall that is covered in ivy that they would never let you build a brick outfield wall again in Major League Baseball. And it creates all sorts of weird plays because you can't play the outfield wall at Wrigley the same way that you would play the outfield wall in other places. But you can... You see plays in both of those parks that you would never see anywhere else. You see sight lines that you would never see anywhere else. And frankly, um, I've done the Wrigley Field tour a couple of times. It's one of those things I always do when family members come into town. I think it's the best, like, 25 It might be 30 now, whatever it is, $30 that you can spend on the north side of Chicago short of seeing a game. It's incredible to stand, to stand on that field and know that, like, Babe Ruth called his shot on the field at Wrigley Field. That, like... There were 
Michael Jordan played there in exhibition games when he was a member of the White Sox in double A, right? Like that every musician you can imagine came through Wrigley Field on tour at some point in time. I'm going to see Bruce Springsteen for the first time at Wrigley Field later this summer. And it's honestly like a bucket list thing for me. That is and the I dream. Just, that is the dream. You don't get that from any other park. You get that from Wrigley Field. You get that from Fenway Park. That is it. There are two. <laughs> I had the same thing at Fenway. I saw Paul McCartney there in 2013. And I remember him saying that that was like the biggest concert that like any kind of Beatles or Beatles adjacent concert ever. It was one of the best things that has ever happened to me. And I saw Billy Joel at Fenway. My cousin opened for Billy Joel at Fenway in 2015, which was just bonkers behavior. I was dancing to We Didn't Start the Fire in the visiting dugout. Um, And Lady Gaga at Fenway also. And this, along the same lines, I don't. I think a lot of people don't realize this. The A's might be cursed because of the wall that they had at Scheib. Because in, I want to say it was like the, the 20s, they built a wall in their outfield because people who lived on the street that like ran adjacent to the outfield were making money by having seats set up on the roofs of their houses like Wrigley. Um, And they didn't want, I think they called it the wall of spite or something. Uh, You can read about it online. I remember reading about this because I was like, I fell into like one of these kind of internet black holes where I was just like reading all about Scheib when I was covering the Phillies. And it was just the most wild thing to me that like they, they really poisoned their own well in Philly and because they wanted people to come and see games at the ballpark. And it was kind of like for want of a nail, a kingdom was lost where the behavior was so rude to Philadelphia, like to Philly, like Philly fans, like that they were actually like, you know what? Screw you. We're not going to like come to game. We're not going to do anything at games now. And it was really part of what led to the undoing of the first dynasty of the A's. And you're seeing that now with the Oakland edition of the same team where the greed of the ownership, the miserliness of the ownership is, you know, not to turn this into a whole, like what the heck is going on with the Oakland days, but the Red Sox just play them. And then after they come to you guys, they're going to play them again in Oakland. And it's like going to be, unless something crazy happens, it's going to be one of the last times that, you know, the Red Sox or any MLB team, you know, plays at the Coliseum. And as much as I did not enjoy going to the Coliseum, you know, when I lived in California, the way that it's going down uh, is just, it just really, it drives me freaking nuts. Uh, you know, one of my grandfathers was a union guy. Uh, I hate, I hate like ownership greed. I hate millionaire corporate greed and billionaire greed. And I just, I hate it. I hate it so much. <laughs> I could not agree with you more. I was actually one of my favorite moments from the all-star game, although a heartbreaking moment is in the top of the fifth when the Oakland fans started getting everyone to chant, sell the team. And frankly, like, I'll just say this for Oakland fans. I'm going to cry. The way that they have organized around this whole thing is so inspiring. And the fact that it doesn't move John Fisher and his minions at all is so utterly tragic. It's just this, it's indicative of all of the problems in Sports in society, I, the billionaire versus the rest of us stuff has got to stop. And I, I don't know how that's going to stop eventually, but 
it is heartening to see Oakland fans There's come some together. Marie Antoinette level shit. Really, it is truly like <laughs> they let are them eat they cake. are letting them eat caking people out of out of baseball. I I don't even think this is an unpopular opinion at this point because I've said this on Twitter before. But I view baseball as Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. If you want to own a baseball team, you should have to prove that you care about baseball as much, if not more, than the bottom line. If you're not running a baseball team because it is part of something bigger than yourself, you do not deserve to own a baseball team. It is the whole fever pitch thing. Jimmy Fallon and Drew Barrymore, he's talking about the Red Sox, and she says, you're a romantic, you know, because he says, I like, I love being part of something bigger than myself. This is my summer family. If you don't feel that way about a baseball team, you don't deserve to own one. It would be better for fans to sh- own shares, like have it go public and own a team and have, you know, the league appoint GMs for each team so that, you know, the fans can't be too fan about it in terms of like just hiring a yes man for their GM. But, you know, you also don't have these owners who are just bending the commissioner's office to their will because they're billionaires and they could literally buy up entire countries if they wanted to. I hate it. Yeah, I'm like I totally to- socialist about it, basically. No, I am too. Like, I feel like baseball should be a public trust. And honestly, we didn't talk about this in the first part, but this is one of the reasons that Jed Hoyer and Hein Bloom both drive me crazy because I think they look at baseball teams and players more like widgets than they do like people that we love for the things that they have done for us at various key moments that sports have been super important. And it is, it just drives me absolutely bonkers to see them not understand what a Xander Bogarts means to the Boston fan base, not understand what a Anthony Rizzo means to the Chicago fan base. Like the fact that Jed Hoyer thinks he can cobble together some combination of Eric Hosmer and Trey Mancini and Cody Bellinger, and maybe Matt Mervis will come up at first and that will somehow cobble together something that is equivalent to what Anthony Rizzo did for the Chicago Cubs is unbelievably absurd. And frankly treats fans like we don't understand why we love this game. And I mean, I love it for the sport and I understand that it's a business and also Anthony Rizzo should have been a cub the day he retired. I I mean, my thing is, it's interesting, you know, at Red Sox winter weekend, John Henry, you know, for Cubs fans who don't know, John Henry is the principal owner of the Red Sox. He also owns Liverpool Football Club and a bunch of other stuff uh, and the Boston Globe. John Henry made a surprise appearance at the Friday night town hall of Red Sox winter weekend, which was the first winter weekend since before the pandemic. The last winter weekend was the week that Alex Cora and the Red Sox mutually agreed to part ways after the Houston Astros thing came to light. And um, uh, exactly one month before they traded Mookie Betts. So interesting time to be alive. This was the first one since then in uh, mid January. He comes on stage, you know, he and Chaim and all of these people on the stage, Sam Kennedy, everyone's getting booed. Henry's getting booed. They could not finish the sentence, which to me is like, on the one hand, that is your right to pay money to go and boo them, though it's not really the own you think it is that you're giving them money because they're still getting money from you, but okay. Um, but you also can't boo them so much that they can't finish the sentence and then say, well, we didn't get answers from them. You know, like you got to be smart about the way that you fight back. Um, so he's getting booed and booed and booed. And uh, he finally is like, like, if you want to, me to answer your question, you have to let me, you know, talk. Uh, 
And he brought up somebody that you and I and the, our teams are very familiar with, which is Theo. And he says, you know, in 2004, uh, which bonkers that next year will be the, we're about a year and two weeks away from the anniversary, 20th anniversary of this. Theo Epstein trades Nomar. To the Cubs. And yeah, to the Cubs in a four team trade, which is just like, I mean, that's Juan Soto levels bonkers mid season trade. And in today's game, it would have been like a Juan Soto level situation in terms of prospects and all that. Back then, it was like Cabrera and Menkovich for Nomar. And John Henry's sitting there at Winter Weekend, and he says, you know, when he traded him, Theo said to me, I feel like the loneliest man in the world because you have to make these hard decisions trying to do the best thing for your baseball team, trying to get them there. You know, 2004, it's 86 years. And you think about it now, like I'm sitting there and I'm like, you know what, though? If they don't win the World Series that year, like, that, that's like, that's what he's remembered for. He's the guy that traded Noma for nothing. And like, good, like, thank God for him it worked out because otherwise you're the guy that traded Nomar. And, you know, right now, Chaim Bloom is the guy that traded Mookie. And he's the guy that Xander Bogart, like, let Xander Bogarts walk away. And I don't agree with everything the Red Sox do. And I certainly, you know, don't agree with, you know, having two losing seasons in the last three years and paying the luxury tax last year to be a losing team. But I also think that what people don't understand, and I learned this more when I became less, like, when I moved from fan into, like, media member, is that there's a lot that's in these people's hands in the front office. And there's also a lot that isn't, you know, you can sign a great player, you can acquire a great player and they can go from being a great player to being terrible when they get to your team for no legit reason. You can sign a free agent. Same thing can happen. You can extend a guy like Chris sale who until 2018 was on track to be a hall of famer. And all of a sudden he can just get absolutely demolished with injuries some of which were total freak accidents. Like people love to complain about the accumulation of Chris Sale injuries now, but getting hit by a line drive in his second start last summer is not a thing that he can control. And the funny thing is that it was like within a 10 day period of Trevor story, getting a broken bone and on a hit by a pitch. And somehow that isn't Trevor's fault, but it's Chris's fault that, and Aaron Hicks smoked a liner in his pinky. And I just, I don't, I think that you, I think that a lot of people don't think logically about this. And I think that, you know, a lot of baseball is breaking an omelet to make a few eggs and that's not always going to be pretty. But the thing is that if, and Sam Kennedy says this all the time, when the Red Sox are winning, no one's complaining about the broken eggshells because they have the omelet. You know, when you're at the five-star buffet, you're not complaining about the garbage that has to, that, you know, that's piled up in the kitchen from cooking the meal because you're enjoying the meal. And I just, and I don't want that to make it sound like, you know, players are garbage because it just was not a thought out analogy. But, you know, I think a lot of stuff that Chaim Bloom has done over the last few years has been done well. Not all of it, and I don't agree with all of it, but... Some of it's been smart. Some of it's been a gamble. 
And I also just think that Red Sox fans, uh, as well as fans of other fan bases with really winning records in the last 20 years, or just the, the Yankees fans always, you're on, you're realistic, your expectations are a little bit unrealistic. You know, the last time the Cleveland team won a World Series, my dad was about a decade away from being born. My grandmother was in high school. And somehow Red Sox fans are upset that in the last 20 years, they've won four World Series. They've been to several other postseasons. They've won more division titles. They have the winningest team. In terms of postseason scope and success, they have the winningest team of the century. And people are upset. I'm not saying don't be upset about Mookie. I'm not saying don't be upset about about Xander. But I'm saying if you are whining about the Red Sox finishing in last place when they had four championships in your lifetime, you might want to take a look at the fucking Oakland Athletics. (laughs) Sorry. I just, it bothers me to no end. The entitlement, you know, you call it title town and it's entitled town. And it really, it drives me nuts that, you know, in 2019, they finished with a winning record and people are like, how dare they not repeat and win another hundred plus games and win the world series. It happens. They had a winning record. They were fine. Some of their players got better. Stuff happens. Like, you know what? It is It is a t- It is a league with 30 teams. And look at the Dodgers last year. They win a franchise record, what, 111 games? They get booted out by the Padres. It happens. This isn't 1940s baseball where if you have the best record in your eight-team league, you win your pennant and you just go right into the World Series. A lot of times, I mean, look at the Mariners the year they won the 116 games. It's not always your year, and sometimes it's bad luck, and sometimes and sometimes that makes the years that it is your year a million times better. And nobody who looked at 2004 and 2007 and 13 and 18 can tell me any different, and if you do, you are lying to yourself because the bad times are what make the, makes the good times better. If it was always good, if it was never raining and it was always sunny, you wouldn't appreciate the sun. I totally agree with this. And, you know, we only had 2016, but the Cubs were in the NLCS the next year. They were in the playoffs for a steady run of like four years in a row. And it drove me absolutely bonkers. Two years ago. It drove me bonkers in 2018 and 2019 when people were complaining about the Cubs. I'm like, this is literally the greatest Cubs team of any of our lifetimes, bar none. There is, and you're complaining about Joe Madden. And I'm just like, I cannot right now. Like, Joe Madden has delivered more for the city of Chicago as the manager of the Chicago Cubs than any of us could imagine. Speaking of the Cubs and Red Sox, they're about to face off, and we've got some pitching matchups here. Uh, Brian Bayo is going to square off against Kyle Hendricks. They sport identical 3.04 ERAs, although Bayo has done that over quite a few more appearances than Hendricks. Hendricks missed the start of the season with uh, while he was rehabbing that shoulder injury. On Saturday afternoon, James Paxton and Marcus Stroman will face off, and these are two pitchers who have both really been pretty solid most of their careers, but are performing particularly well in 2023. And then Cutter Crawford and Justin Steele will face off for the finale of the series on Sunday. Gabrielle, what do you see in these pitching matchups? So the first thing I'll say is Brian Bayo is like the guy where he is the best starting pitcher that this team has, that this franchise has developed since John Lester. And the Red Sox are known for struggling to develop legit starting pitchers, which is why you have the 2018 situation where it's a very expensive starting rotation. And then you still have to trade for Nathan Evaldi at the deadline. And then you're saddled with David Price and Chris Sale's contracts for so many years. This is a team that 
has been overcorrecting for the loss of John Lester since trading John Lester and hasn't had someone like John Lester. I mean, Brian Bayo is a guy where Pedro Martinez has worked with him personally, invited him to his home in the Dominican uh, where they are both from during the off season. They're working out at Pedro's house and Pedro tells me during spring training, I think this guy is more talented than I am. I think he can win multiple Cy Youngs. I think he is better than me when I was his age at his stage in the career. Brian Bayo not only has been very good, consistent, like pretty consistently all season. Um, if you kind of overlook his first game of the season, which was Marathon Monday in Boston, went into a rain delay about three innings in, and then that was it for him. So he gets tagged for five, I think, earned runs over about two plus two or so innings and, you know, starts the season with like a 17 ERA. He's well, working his way down. And for non-Bostonians, the thing that's unique about Marathon Monday, we in Chicago talk about the afternoon starts all the time because the Cubs have this yeah. early schedule more often than the later schedule that most other teams play. Marathon Monday, the game starts at like 11 so that they can get the game off while the race is going on. And then you like get out of the game and you go join the race. It's a super weird start time. And it's just a, it, it, weird stuff it's can amazing. happen on that game. It's, it's one of my it's favorite amazing. things in Boston. <laughs> It is amazing because it's so chaotic because like, for one thing, you can't drive through half the city because of the marathon and the marathon goes right past Fenway park. It goes on Boylston street, which it's is incredible. One of the, sorry, not Boylston street. It goes down beacon street. Uh, and then goes to hard to explain. Whatever. Right on Hereford. Goes, what the- <laughs> goes from Boylston to Hereford to yeah. beacon to I grew up watching it on Beacon Street in Coolidge Corner, which is right by Fenway Park. And then it turns on to Boylston Street and the finish line is on Boylston Street by the Boston Public Library. Um, so his debut for the season, because he too began the season on the injured list, his debut for the season was on Marathon Monday and in the third inning. And by the way, he was pitching against Shohei Otani. Oh, I so realize that. It's an extremely not imposing time to be alive it was also the 10th anniversary of the boston marathon bombing so it's extremely emotional and to top it all off it was freezing rain and we went into an hour plus rain delay so he did not return after that and since then you know but i would say you know he since the end of april has only allowed more than two earned runs once uh he over his last several starts has been so lights out over the last six games dating back to the beginning of June. He has a 2.21 ERA uh, over 40 and two thirds innings. Uh, He is not, he's given up one home run since the beginning of June. (laughs) Like the guy has been so, so good. Uh, And he just has been getting like better and better. He has gone six or more innings every single one of his last six starts dating back to the beginning of June. I mean, the guy is going deep. He is effective. He is just, it is, it is so, it is so exciting to see a guy come up from the farm system in this team and, and be the kind of pitcher that this team has had to pay for or trade for, for such a long time. So, I mean, him, like, He and James Paxton, you know, they have been anchoring this rotation. And I want to be clear, though, Chris Sale, before he got hurt, was doing so well, which makes him getting hurt so much sadder because this is a guy where you really feel for him. He's such a competitor. Um, You know, he you guys were kind of proximity to this on the other side of Chicago for so many years where 
This is a perennial all-star. This is a guy who's getting Cy Young votes every year. Uh, you know, his first season in Boston, he's Cy Young runner-up. He pitched, uh, I think, 300 innings or something. They had 300 strikeouts. I don't know. It's like best season of his career. And the fact that he just seems to have such bad luck with injuries, I don't think that you should leave him that because he's hurt. He should be left out of the conversation. He has been so good. James Paxton, like, it is so nice to see a guy in along the same lines. You know, the Red Sox come into this season with Kluber, Paxton, and Sale. Four, five, six years ago, that's like such an absurdly nasty top three in your rotation. And now it's like these are three guys just trying to, to stick with it, trying to find it again, trying to come back. Somewhat to different situations for each of them. But Paxton, just like right out of the gate, I think his – first or second start of the season was his game in San Diego. And I was sitting there in the press box and I'm just like, Oh my God, this guy's like throwing a hundred in it, like hundred pitches. Like what? he has been, he's been deep in his games. Like the only game of the last month and a half that he hasn't gone more than five innings was when he left the game with knee soreness and he was dominating. He'd given up two hits in four innings and he left the game with knee soreness. Thankfully, Knock on wood, you know, he's been fine. His ERA is down to 273. I mean, he's been so good. Another guy who, aside from one bad start against the Angels in May, hasn't allowed more than three earned one earned runs once in 10 starts, has only allowed more than two earned runs in eight of nine of those starts. You know, like eight, eight of nine of those starts, zero to two earned runs. The guy is... He's not walking guys, you know, he's given up, you know, very few home runs in the grand scheme of today's game. I mean, he's, he is really someone who's battled his way back. And I just think, you know, this is a guy where if he's not in the same league as Liam Hendricks, he's AL comeback player of the year. If he sustains this through the end of the season. Um, And, you know, just, just a great story. You love to see it this week. You know, he wrapped up the season with a solid six-inning effort and then welcomed his second kid with his wife. They had a baby girl. Uh, and it's just like a nice, you know, you like to see a pitcher, you know, have that kind of opportunity because, you know, once this game leaves these guys, it almost never comes back, right? And, you know, a lot of these guys don't get to end their careers on their own terms. Red Sox fans saw this with Pedroia, and it was heartbreaking, and to see this Paxton renaissance, you know, he's just so happy and grateful every single time that you really just can't help but be really happy for him because you can see how much it means to him. And when you see the other side of that, you see how painful it is for a guy. Like, I don't know how anyone would root against him. To me, it's just, it's, it's, it's one of those things where you kind of are like, you want to live in this moment forever because like, you know, sooner or later you like, it's your last game and you might not know it. <laughs> totally. Uh, for Red Sox fans, the thing I will say about these matchups, Justin Steele really turned it around after a conversation with John Lester, who talked to him about how he was sequencing pitches and how he was using his particular pitch mix and how he could be more effective about it. The thing about Steele that's really fascinating. He only has two pitches. He has fastball and a slider. The slider is plus. Uh, but the way he locates his fastball really makes it play like more than one pitch. And he is 
the grittiest competitor that I have seen this side of John Lester and John Lackey. It is, you can see that spirit um, in him. Lackey. He is that dude. I know. Well, Lackey is the dude you love when he's your guy, right? Like if Lackey's on oh, your yeah. team, you love him. And when Lackey is I mean, pitching you're against you, he sucks. Cardinals, you hate John Lackey. Totally. I, I didn't mention Cutter Crawford and he deserves his kudos because he's another guy where Cutter Crawford has been really, really, really great for the Red Sox in that they have used him every possible way. And that 411 ERA does not give you the full scope. I'm a big, I'm a big believer. And I guess this is the writer in me and the storyteller in me, but it's very important to me to look beyond stats. Cause you can look at a guy and my favorite example of this is Adam Ottavino in the 2020 shortened season where he had like one game where he got absolutely mauled. He gave up like seven earned runs in September. His ERA did not recover because it was a shortened season. So you, your ERA is not ERAing out over as many games as it would. And people are like, oh my God, he freaking sucks. I'm like, he was nails in like the vast majority of his, you know, whatever. So like Cutter Crawford, similar situation. He has a 411 ERA, but in 17 games, nine of them are starts, five of them are games finished. The guy has been used so like he started the season in the, in the rotation. He struggled. They move him to the bullpen. He's a great long relief guy. The pitching injuries start piling up. He's back in the rotation. If you think about how difficult it is to be a pitcher in the major leagues, just period. Then think about not being able to have a full routine because you're getting used so many different ways that it's basically like if you are never home and you're living out of a suitcase going to different cities all the time, which is basically what baseball players do. But that's his job description too. And it's the same thing with Tanner Houck, who you're not going to see because he's hurt. But Tanner Houck came up as a starter, debuted as a starter. They moved him around, bullpen, closer, starter. He was supposed to start the season in the bullpen because of a bunch of guys not being ready to start the season. He's been in the rotation the whole season. And he has been so, so consistent, even just in terms of maybe not limiting the runs as much as you would like, but going out there, pitching, you know, five, six innings, you know, giving the team a chance, not exhausting the bullpen. Guys like Crawford, Hauk, Winkowski, another starter who's been, you know, really good in the bullpen and long relief role. These are the guys that have held the Red Sox together because that versatility is the difference that they didn't have last year. It's the difference they didn't have in 2019. And that is the thing that I will give the credit that you have to give Chaim Bloom is when he inherited this organization in 2019, they were the 30th farm system in baseball. And this year, they were ranked 10th by Baseball America, which is their best ranking in like more than half a decade. And the fact that they have a winning record at the break is because they have organizational depth that they had completely lost four or five years ago. And you, you lose that because you build a winning team, but also because you struggle to develop certain kinds of players and therefore need to be adding more. And that's a slippery slope, you know, mutually fulfilling cycle of, of bad situations where if you're not going to spend every single year and you're not developing up developing a farm system, you have a year like 2020, but this year, the reason that the Red Sox have a winning record is because they have depth in their farm system and they have depth on their roster and versatility where you have guys who can do lots of different things. And that's been their saving grace. 
Yeah, I think that's a great point. I mean, one of the things I give Jed Hoyer a lot of grief, but one of the things that he certainly did was rebuild a Cubs farm system that was also like woefully lacking depth and starting a pitch lab that has developed pitchers like Justin Steele, pitchers like Javier Assad, pitchers like Keegan Thompson. I mean, these are all homegrown guys who can be a solid number four, number five starter for any team. And that doesn't scream. Well, Seals probably a number one or number two. I mean, it was just an all-star, but it's like one of those situations where it's like, that doesn't scream. You're developing the aces. You're not the Cleveland guardians developing like four or five aces every time you turn around, but those number four, number five guys get you through a season and they give you depth to be able to add later. They give you wins when you need them. Uh, let's and talk they give about you the trade. They give you trade bait too. They definitely give you trade bait. I mean, bait. look at the Tampa Bay Rays. They churn these guys out. You never know half of their roster. And and no matter who's hurt, they somehow have a dude coming up from triple A or even double A. Totally. And the guy's like striking out 85 guys in three games. And I'm like, how? How? But it's I mean, that's that's what you need. And you know, I think that people are too too quick to, you know, like I said at the beginning. You can be mad about moves that the Red Sox have made, but you also have to look at the full scope of the situation and give credit because it's not all bad. And if it was all bad, the Red Sox wouldn't have a winning record. Justin Steele wouldn't be an all-star. Like Chris Martin wouldn't be on the Red Sox. Henley Jansen wouldn't be on the Red Sox. Like people in Boston love to come. You know this, the bullpen has not been, I haven't felt comfortable about the Red Sox bullpen. In years. I didn't feel comfortable about the Red Sox bullpen in 2018. People were giving me crap. And I was like, the only reason you think that the Red Sox bullpen is good is because the rotation is so deep that they're regularly going seven, eight, nine innings. And therefore, Cora actually had to give pitchers work by keeping his starters out. Like, I remember a game where he was like, I need to get Kimbrell into the game because he hasn't pitched in like a week. And because the offense was so good that they were just scoring a zillion runs every single game. That's not the same thing as a good bullpen. And you saw that in the ALCS when Andrew Benintendi had to save Craig Kimbrell. And people were like, you just like are a hater. I'm like, no, I'm objectively looking at a bullpen that isn't consistent. Now you have Chris Martin and Kenley Jansen. Objectively, that is one of, if not the best one-two punches in the American League. At the very least, it is a top one-two punch at the end of your game in the division. It's so funny that you bring up Kimbrell because he just saved the all-star game for the national league. Yes, and it reminded did. me of Craig Kimbrell. Exactly the same way. It, it is the Craig Kimbrell. I was sitting there on FaceTime with my boyfriend because he's in NBA summer league right now. And he couldn't get the app to work on his phone. So I had the FaceTime turned the camera turned with the thing on the TV. So he could watch the game with me. I'm like holding the phone up. My wrist was like getting sore. And he's like, did Kimbrell just, is that Kimbrell loading the bases with a bunch of walks and hit by pitches and all this shit? And I was like, yeah, that's like exactly what he's doing. Vintage Kimbrell uh, and vintage Dombrowski being the one who who brought him to Philly uh, because that's Dombrowski's thing. But yes, I I feel like I'm just somebody who, who, again, same thing with stats. You got to look at the sum. And the, you got to look at the sum, you got to look at the parts, you got to look at them together, you got to separate them, you know, the same thing as this is a collective sport, but it's a collective sport with individual awards. So it's both. And at the end of the day, when a player is negotiating their arbitration or their free agency, it's not about how many wins the team had, it's about what ERA you had or what your slugging percentage was. And that stuff's important. 
uh, because the team, if you're in arbitration, the team's going to be like, well, uh, you know, 10 players at your position around the league had a better batting average than you. Uh, five players walked less than you. So uh, we want to give you 500K less because even though we're worth a gazillion dollars, we don't want to give you the money that you want because we can offer you half a million dollars less. Uh, it's This is a team sport in terms of the win-loss record, but when it comes down to it, this is an individual career and uh, it matters what you're doing individually. Um, and the same thing can be said for the people who are in charge of these teams, you know, Losing a guy like Mookie Betts matters, but it also matters that this team has a winning record with two thirds of a healthy rotation and uh, no middle infield, basically. Like that, totally. that, that's insane. Totally agree. And as we've been having this conversation, I mean, I knew this uh, intuitively and intellectually, but it's funny to see all the crossover between the Cubs and the Red Sox oh, that yeah. exists. It's like, and, and a lot of that is Theo and Jed it's coming to Chicago. Yeah, yeah. But it, you can like just, it's like, oh, they both went for Craig Kimbrell and John Lackey and John Lester. No, man. It's like, you've just got like this whole collection of players where it's like they have all gone back and forth between the two. And, and I sort of love that yeah. for the Cubs. And I love that for the Red Sox. <laughs> I love it too, but it's also kind of interesting to think like, okay, so both of these teams had Theo. Theo ended the, the, the droughts, the curses of both of these teams, which like unless baseball survives another hundred plus years or, you know, 40 plus years, 40 plus years so that somebody does this for Cleveland or he takes over for Cleveland like, which would be hilarious. Like, can you imagine? Like, I just, I, for the story of it, the Hollywood plot, somebody needs to make a movie about Theo Epstein. First of all, like a air movie-esque thing, like the Matt Damon Ben oh, Affleck thing, which is, was so phenomenal. And if you haven't seen it, like one of the best movies I've seen this year, uh, and we're big movie people. Like, no one has done for these two franchises like, no one has done for any other franchise what Theo Epstein did for the Red Sox and the Cubs. But it's very interesting to think about the fact that he was able to do that for these two franchises, which I'm not saying it's just him. Lots of people, a lot of stuff went into this. A lot of, you know, good decisions, luck, you know, serendipity, a little bit of magic in terms of, you know, the Red Sox and that blood moon in, in St. Louis. <laughs> the fact that these teams have struggled after Theo and haven't necessarily been able to replicate Theo. I mean, the Red Sox did it with other general managers and GM type people, but not necessarily the way that Theo did it. I mean, Dombrowski came in and just spent and traded a, an enormous amount uh, or not just, but a lot. Yeah. Um, Hence your farm system woes. <laughs> right. Yeah. Which is interesting though, because a lot of people like to be like, Oh, Dombrowski doesn't know how to build a farm. The early 2000 Detroit Tigers would beg to differ. Yeah, and the fact sure. that he's drafted some of the best talent of the last two decades would also beg to differ. And the Miami Marlins of his 90s era would also beg to differ. But whatever. I just think it's interesting the way that the post-Theo Epstein eras for the Red Sox and the Cubs have gone. I would say, obviously, the Red Sox a lot more success. But that's also because they've had a lot more spending. Um and you guys are obviously about 12 years behind the the progression of the first drought ending championship. So you're, you're getting into that territory of like, maybe you're on the cusp of having that really good 2007 esque team. Um, hopefully not on the cusp of a tragic spurred 2013. 
Um, but like, it's also just the game is different now. You know, the the game that Theo Epstein changed for Boston is not the game like that kind of Moneyball era. I mean, look at the A's. We keep coming back to the A's, which is I know. <laughs> yeah, but, I mean, it'll be interesting to see if Jed what Jed Hoyer can do now that it's it's his team right now. Like he's getting his yeah. shot to prove what he can do without Theo right there. The last thing we need to talk about before I let you go, and I thank you for joining me for what has been an extended episode of Cup of Cubby Blue. But hopefully, our listeners are enjoying this baseball conversation. <laughs> uh, two girls who clearly love the game as much as humanly possible, um, as much as I've been enjoying it. Uh, I want to look at the Cubs and Red Sox hot and cold hitters. For those of you who listen to the show, you know that this is a qualified batters in the last two weeks. The cutoff is a WRC plus of 110 to be a hot hitter. It is 85 or lower to be a cold hitter. Uh, for the Cubs, the hot hitters are few and far between. Cody Bellinger had his 13-game hitting streak snapped right before the All-Star break. It happened in the last game before the All-Star break, if I recall correctly. But he has a WRC plus of 203. Um, in that last two-week period. Nick Madrigal, who was unfortunately on the injured list with a hamstring injury, uh, had a WRC plus of 184 during that period. He was far and away the Cubs' hottest hitter before he got hit, uh, got hurt. Uh, and then Seiya Suzuki heating up, which is always good to see. He is has a WRC plus of 114 during that time period. Uh, th- for the Red Sox, their hot bats, Jaron Duran, who had to fight for a job, has a WRC plus of 292 over that two-week period. And, and for those of you who do not recall what WRC plus is, that means he is 192% better than league mm-hmm. average at driving in runs. So, like, just don't pitch to Jaron Duran. Like, try to try to not do that. Yoshida, who we were talking about earlier, has WRC plus of 224 during that period. Justin Turner, who you may, may remember from his Dodgers days, a WRC plus of 153. And Raphael Devers, who is always great, WRC plus of 144 during that time period. What do you see in these hot bats, Gabrielle? So I was going to bring up Duran at the beginning and he was kind of on the fringe of like your kind of all-star question because he's definitely a guy where, you know, he, he didn't come up until April 17th. Uh, this is a guy who debuted two years ago, two partial seasons over the last two years, the past, the two years preceding this current season, um, like super, super top prospects for the Red Sox. And then kind of just like couldn't figure it out for the first two years. I mean, it was limited play. It was up and down, which I feel like people don't realize how kind of jarring and difficult it is to find your groove at the major league level. If you're not at the major league level consistently, like this is a guy who's getting shuttled back and forth from AAA Worcester. I I mean, look, that drive in traffic is enough to mess with anyone's head. I I can't imagine what it's like when you're fighting for your career. Uh, Jaron Duran this year, like, the most absurd transformation, and I mean that in the best way possible, that I've ever seen in my 30 years of being alive and loving baseball, this is a guy who in July is slugging 1.125. It's absurd. That's in slugging, eight, not in, people. In, in 24 games in June, he had six doubles. In eight games in July, he has six doubles and two triples and a home run. He had one home run all last month. He has one home run, two triples, and six doubles. This month alone in 24 at-bats, he is 14 for 24 this month. The guy is hitting 583 with a 583 on-base percentage, 27 total bases coming from 24 at-bats. He's only started five of those games, by the way. 
So that is eight games, but only five of them are starts. <laughs> well, and he's stolen 17 bases in 251 plate appearances. He's yeah. on pace for a 30-plus steal yeah. season, which is incredible yeah. when you consider he's not playing full-time. He's in a platoon yeah. with Rob Ruffsnyder. Yeah, and, and Adam Duvall. And, and by the way, Jaron Duran in 24 at-bats this, this month has only struck out one time. He has not issued – he has not drawn a walk, but, of course, that is because he is just getting on base every single time, basically. So, you know, you're not I, – I, I mean, <laughs> he – and the thing is, he's hitting lefties well. He's hitting righties well. Like, he's obviously hitting righties a lot better, but he's hitting 278 against lefties with a 325 on base percentage. Like, he – I mean, I, I just, I don't even really know, like, what to say about him at this point, because you just, you, there is no way to describe, like, the transformation. It's also, the defense has been good. He's always been fast, but he already, like, a couple of weeks ago, had surpassed Trevor Story's team-leading stolen base total from last year, which was 13 stolen bases. He surpassed that in June, and he didn't come up until April 17th. He leads the team in doubles. He is one of the league leaders in doubles. He is leading the team, the qualified players on the team in batting average. He's hitting 320. Yeah, 320. He's like, I, I, I mean, I don't really know like what to say. Over the last month, the last 28 days, he has a 1.186 OPS. Well, and I'm pretty sure he led off the series last year with a home run to dead center, like when the Cubs played yes. the Red Sox at Wrigley Field, because I was late to that game. I was walking up to the ballpark, listening to Pat Hughes on the radio as I was walking to the park. And I, I heard remember you tweeting about this. I heard the home run <gasps> before I got to the park. And I was like, Jared Duran, can't you just wait till I'm there? That happened to me in 2018, in April 2018. Do you remember the series where the Red Sox went to Anaheim? I think it was for four games, but it might have been three. And they absolutely murdered the Angels where I got stuck in traffic coming down from L.A., as you do always. I drive into to the stadium where, of course, my ticket cost less than my parking because I got an $8 right. nosebleed ticket and I had to pay $10 for parking. And while I was walking into the ballpark, Jackie Bradley Jr. homered. And I think that was the night Mookie Betts had a three-homer game, but that might have been a different game in the series, and that might have been the Shohei Otani start where they destroyed Shohei. But anyway, I, I, like that's that is kind of the situation where he he is just doing so well. And Mazataki Yoshida, we talked about him at the beginning. He's been so great, and and Justin Turner too. We didn't talk about him, but Justin Turner has been so good for the Red Sox, especially recently. I mean, he's hitting 288. You have a lot of guys who are hitting for a really good average on this team. Um, a lot of guys who are getting on base really, really well. Um, and those were big focuses of the Red Sox last year during the offseason to improve the team from last year. And this was a very raised thing. This is a very original money ball thing of maybe you're not, maybe you don't have the biggest home run hitters, but you have guys that are getting on base. And that was the original, like, you know, Scott Hatterberg, Chris Pratt, Brad yep. Pitt, Billy Bean, Moneyball thing of, you know, these guys are drawing walks and their pitchers are limiting walks. And that is why this team, even with so many injuries, even without a ton of like 
sluggers. I mean, the only guy on this team with more than 13 home runs is Rafael Devers. And there are only three guys on this lineup who have double digit home runs at the break. But that's okay for now because you have guys who are getting on base. You also have guys that like Jaron Duran, he's, he's hit five homers, but that's okay because he's has like, Oh, he has like every, okay. He has like everything else going for him. Tristan Cassis. Like we didn't talk about him. This is a guy. He's 23 years old, came up late last September. He has nine homers, but he's had a really rough stretch before, you know, really figuring it out. And now he's one of the walks leaders on the team. I mean, he has 40 walks. Like Gabrielle, he has more walks think... than Masataka Yoshi. He's leading the team in walks. <laughs> Gabrielle's dog, Ruby, is is angry that we're going over time here. But we're going to yeah. wrap up pretty quick here, Ruby, I promise. Um, I don't think I told you, though. I sat next to Tristan Cassis's uncle at the World Baseball Classic. And oh my he God. talked my ear off about Tristan's whole game. <laughs> That is very funny because Tristan is a guy where he a lot of times is is actually pretty is I mean I think he's careful with his words in general but he's a guy where he is not that way. Um some of the guys on the team like Chris Sale's a guy he'll give you really really long answers and I mean that in the most complimentary uh way possible. Um but Tristan's a guy where sometimes you'll get you know he he doesn't have to to go unlike me, you know, rattling on for an hour and a half. This is he is not a guy who needs a lot of words to kind of get his point across. Uh, and I admire that about him. And I admire the uh, the way that he's had to adjust because he he really has landed in this starting first baseman role uh, in a way that a lot of people I think didn't expect him to be. Like, I think he's been more full time than people thought he was going to be. Um, so early after 20 something games last year. And I think that people don't realize how difficult it is to adjust, you know, to make that jump. Um, anyone who does should take a look at Bobby Dalback, who is hitting like a thousand at triple a with a zillion home runs, including a 500 plus foot home run that hit a moving train, but has never really been able to figure it out consistently at the major league level. Like this is an incredibly hard, hard, hard job to do and I have a lot more sympathy now both I think from perspective from getting older and also from just focusing more on being of these people being people first and foremost not just players that a 23 year old guy who's the starting first baseman for a team in one of the most you know microscopically focused brightest spotlight franchises like you know leading the team in walks you know solid on base percentage like people have seen what he can do defensively before people have seen what he can do in terms of his power the raw power you know and it it will come together and if you need more proof of that it took Jaron Duran to his third year and not making the opening day lineup and Adam Duvall breaking his wrist in Detroit to get his third chance to make a good impression. And look at what he's doing with it. And if you wanted even more kind of intense example, the Minnesota Twins released David Ortiz. So 
I mean, that's the, that's the textbook yeah. example, right? It's like, you don't want to be the person who released David Ortiz. I mean, the Cubs non-tendered Kyle Schwarber. And that yes, is, that Jesus, that I'm too. just like exactly. apoplectic about the idea that they non-tendered the dude who is a 45 plus home run machine who, look, admittedly, the defense doesn't always play, but he's Kyle Schwarber. And there's a reason that he's in the postseason like every single year and all the man does is hit big home runs. Speaking of guys who are not hitting big home runs at the moment, but could potentially these are the cold bats for right now. Uh, Christopher Morrell just making this list with a WRC plus of 84 over those last two weeks. He was kind of heating up right before this, so I think he'll be fine. Dansby Swanson was at 68. Jan Gomes at 57. Nico Horner at 50. Ian Happ at 33. Mike Tockman at 33. Trey Mancini, who, like, really, do we have to keep Mike doing Talkman's this? Mike Tockman's on your team? Mike Tockman is the strong side I platoon center fielder. I didn't realize he was still playing. For the Chicago Cubs. And he's honestly been kind of nails because he gets on base at like a 360 clip and he plays really good center field defense. And when he plays in center field, Cody Bellinger plays first base and I don't have to see Trey Mancini. Was there not, wasn't Mike talking a Yankee? Yes. And a giant okay. and now a Cub. Yeah. And okay. he took Wilson Contreras's number, which was a real sore spot for me until he basically won a game single-handedly against the Brewers. And now I've decided he can have number 40. Yeah. Well, Justin Turner took Xander Bogart's number. Which I just also Jer- Which was also Jerry Remy's number. And that I was- cannot. You, you don't give that number away. Situation. So part of the reason the number situation with Wilson Contreras was so like galling for me they have not reassigned any of the other 2016 core numbers. Like Kyle Schwarber's number has not been taken. Anthony Rizzo's number has not been taken. Javier Baez's number has not been taken. Chris Bryant's number has not been taken. The only numbers that have been taken there are Addison Russell's number and Jason Hayward's number. And they, I think it's questionable as to whether they are part of the core the same way all those other dudes were. And so for them to immediately reassign Wilson Contreras' number to Mike freaking Tuckman was just, it was so rude. It was so disrespectful. I was horrified. Although Tuckman's been pretty good. So I, I'm going to give him some props now. My, uh, I would say my, my issue with numbers in terms of the number two for, for the whole Remy thing, I, I would have retired it for Remy. Yes. But I also think that, you know, he, his career spanned a lot more than number you know, because he was part of the Red Sox organization for so much longer than his career. Like, you know, you have a guy like Johnny Pesky, uh, who was kind of like, you know, the bot, like the Red Sox grandfather that all of us who didn't have grandfathers, like, you know, sure, Ron Santo. Yeah, exactly. Perfect. Like he, you know, he played most of his career for the Red Sox. He was an incredible player for the Red Sox. Uh, obviously, somewhat overshadowed because he was teammates with Ted Williams and Bobby Doerr. But you know that was that was the foursome was Williams, Doerr, DiMaggio, and Pesky. And he was with the Red Sox for like sixty plus games of his baseball career. Like until the day he died, he was associated with the Red Sox, and. His number is retired, but his number is, you know, his number has been retired since, you know, 2008. He was alive for his number being retired, but he was an infielder, manager, coach, broadcaster, like all these kinds of things. I see that I see a very good case for Remy, 
I will also seed the point that a lot of Remy's contributions were not from his actual playing career for the Red Sox. But I, I, I do, you know, it, it did sting that it went so quickly, but it was also, I mean, that was also Turner's number before and it just couldn't be his number in LA because it was retired. So like, you know, it's, yeah, but Justin I Turner is not that. Mike Tachman. Like, Justin Turner has multiple World Series rings, and he's like, I think he's been an all-star. If he hasn't been an all-star, I totally could see him being an all-star. Like, Mike Tachman is like, yeah, like, Mike Tachman is, like, just a dude, right? Like, he's he's your fourth outfielder. He's the guy who, like, comes and plays on your team for a couple of years and then goes he's away. Two, like, he is a two-time all-star. Yeah, yeah. Justin Turner is, like, a dude, capital D dude. Mike Tachman is not, right? Like, Wilson Contreras is a dude. And he's a dude that won a World Series for the, a team that had a hundred and eight year drought. So, like, how do you give that number to Mike Tockman? Like, it was just such a slap in the face to a player who was a Cub from the time he was sixteen and was pretty, pretty on like the like he was audible that he wanted to stay. It was it was very clear. No, I mean like, he and Bogarts are in the same. Yeah, yeah. You know, signed with the Red Sox at sixteen situation. Always wanted to stay. Wanted yeah, yeah. to retire here. I. It does sting. Uh, and I have no problem admitting that, you know, people know that I grew up a fan of the Red Sox. Like I, I, w- it would be stupid for me to try to hide that, you know, this was my team for not only my life, but for over a hundred years of my family. Um, it, it is, it is sad. Um, but I also just think like, you know, again, this is a team sport, but it's also an individual thing. And that was Justin Turner's number in the past. Uh, it means something to him too. It was also very sweet the way that he, you know, said he wanted to make Jerry Remy proud wearing the number. Um, and at the end of the day, like it's, you know, it's, it's about the parts. It's about the, and it's about the whole. Um, if you want, if I, I will, I, I'm curious as to your thoughts on Kike Hernandez before we wrap up, because he's a guy where you guys saw a lot of him because he was in the national league for quite a while. Um, you know, you guys, Fit you guys were postseason opponents, I believe, right? Oh, yeah, uh, those Dodgers, points. Cubs, NLCSs, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, this is a guy who you've seen a lot of, and he came into the season, um, as the starting shortstop because Story was hurt. Um, he has now basically before the break, Alex Cora said that his sole kind of job right now is some second base and pinch hitting against uh you know lefties i think he said uh that is a very 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 clear demotion um for a guy who not only was gold glove caliber in center field for the red sox in 2021 and a huge huge postseason contributor in 2021 but from starting shortstop to we don't even want him playing shortstop. Um, I'm curious what you've seen of him. Cause if there's a cold bat right now, it's him. It, it is him. He's actually the lowest WRC plus on this list. Um, I'm going to go oh, through yes. the Red Sox list real quick. Uh, Alex Verdugo is at 71. I'm sure he'll be fine. He's Alex Verdugo. Uh, Colton Wong is at 61. Uh, remind me of Hamilton's name. I'm sorry. This is the shortstop call up. I there's- so David, there's David Hamilton, but then David, there's Caleb Hamilton, David. the catcher. Yeah, Pretty sure this is David Hamilton. Uh, Duvall, who we talked about before, is 39. But Kike Hernandez is at a negative two, which means he has 
been, yeah, negative two WRC plus over the last two weeks and change, which means he's been 102% worse than league average at driving in runs. Uh, the thing I see with him is that he has been set up to fail this season. He should be in the outfield. He should be playing second base. He is not a shortstop. He's never really been a shortstop. He's done some spot starts there when he's had to, but he's never played it for an extended amount of time. And I think that it got in his head being like the worst defender in the game when he's not the worst defender in the game. Like he's a very serviceable outfield second base dude put in a position where he can't possibly win. And then Jaron Duran comes in and has to play center field. And it's like, well, if Jaron Duran is going to play in the outfield, that kind of takes away a spot where Kike can do damage. And he just has had a miserable start to the season as a result. And it's showing up in his offensive performance. Yeah. So I, I think this goes back to the whole thing of depth um, and the kind of weird little limbo state that the Red Sox are in where they have a ton of infield depth in the top two levels of their farm system. That is not necessarily ready for the jump to the majors. They have enough depth, enough depth at the AAA level in terms of guys like David Hamilton and Manuel Valdez where they have been able to call guys up for brief stints, but you can tell that they would prefer not to because these are guys who are on the fringes of being major league ready, but you don't really have a choice. Um, I agree that I think that some of it is that he has been set up to fail because for one thing, I mean, he said at the beginning at winter weekend out about an hour before the whole John Henry thing, actually, we had media availability with him and he was talking about, you know, when he signed with the Red Sox, his original contract for the 2021 season, his two-year contract was to be like primarily second base for them. He ended up playing in 2021 and last year, he was mostly center field. And in 2021, he was, it was the year before they implemented the utility gold glove. If they had it in 2021, he probably would have won it, but he didn't have enough innings to qualify for center field. And there was no utility gold glove that year. So he instead did not get one, but he was a stu like stupendous, stupendous player in 2021. He was clutch offensively. He was great in the tricky little Fenway triangle in center field. He was versatile. He got the job done. He was great in the postseason. He was everything you could ask for. He was hurt last year. They extended him last September before the season was over, even though he'd missed a lot of the season, they extended him in September to play center field this year. And they had to pivot from that when they lost Xander Bogart and Trevor Story had that early January elbow surgery. And that is when they had to change their plans. So by the time we got to winter weekend, which I think was January 17th or that week, Kike is the starting shortstop because that was the only thing that they could really figure out to do. I think they probably could have figured out something else. Um, but that was the in-house decision that they made. And I feel for him because it is a very difficult position to, to play. And the other part of it is that if you are somebody who spends most of your time in the outfield, which has been the case for him the last few years at least, I'd have to go back further than 2021 to really kind of look extensively. But in Boston, he's played mostly center field. Uh, and it is 
a lot easier for an infielder to move to the outfield than it is for an outfielder to move to the infield and a shortstop in particular where you are expected to cover so much ground. And now that the shift is restricted, that's even more difficult. There's a lot of things that have combined to make this a rough situation for him. And I, I feel personally that a team that would be in the market for a center fielder at the deadline would be wise to take a flyer on him because in the in games where he has played center field this season, I can think of at least one game in particular where he has been better offensively because he has, is feeling more comfortable defensively. And you see that also with the Red Sox with other players. Andrew Benintendi, you know, he was really, really good in his first few seasons. And in 2019, when Alex Cora flipped him and Mookie Betts in the top of the order for the first two months of the season, and Benintendi did not have you know, had said that he wasn't super comfortable with, you know, making the switch, but he's going to do his best. He and Mookie Betts both suffered. The They didn't flip them back till the end of May. And I remember saying to my best friend at the time, who is a Yankees fan, and we were, and the Yankees were hosting the Red Sox in New York, and I was, we were going to the games together. I remember saying to her, like, they moved him back, but it's probably too late because the Red Sox are already in like a three, a two plus month hole. And you can't just like, flip a switch and be like back to yourself. And once his hitting, you know, struggled, it impacted his defense. It impacted his base running. Even by 2020, Andrew Benintendi was struggling with the most basic base running. The fundamentals were eluding him because he was in such a funk in his head that I truly think the best thing for him was the trade because he was able to recalibrate himself outside of the spotlight. And, you know, I think the same kind of situation would be true for Kike Hernandez. And I, I think people get the wrong idea when you say these kinds of things like, Oh, you don't like him. You should trade him. I think it would be best for the player to not have their career ruined by being in a suboptimal situation. And it's also better for the team. And I don't see why, those kinds of mutually beneficial setups aren't appreciated more for what they do for both sides of the equation. I mean, the, the Benintendi trade brought Josh Winkowski to Boston and he's been very versatile and he's been very, very helpful to the pitching staff this year. And Andrew Benintendi didn't have his career ruined before he turned 30 because he kept trying to kind of beat a dead horse. That's a win. No. I'm with you on this. And I, I mean, I think it would be good for Kike too. And I, I really like Kike Hernandez as a player. I think he's fun. He's a good teammate. I think that he does all the things that you want a utility type player to do on your squad. I've seen him play a lot of second because the Dodgers used him there a lot, but they also used him in the outfield. I'm actually looking at his stat cast page right now. And the thing that really jumps out at me, it just looks like his hard hit rate and his max exit velocity has collapsed. This year, he's swinging and missing at a lot of pitches inside the zone that he used to make contact with, and he's not making contact on those pitches this year. But I truly don't think it's because he like turned into a pumpkin at the age of 31 or anything like yeah. that. I think that what probably happened is he got put in a defensive situation that is just impossible. Like He is trying to master the hardest position on the field to play real time, and he's not doing a very good job at it. And I, I don't think that defense and offense don't impact each other. Um 
I think these are human beings. And if you're having like a terrible day in the field, it's going to show up at the plate and vice versa. And I think that that's where Kike Hernandez is at the moment. And I would love to see what happens if he can just hang out at second base for a bit and get his legs back under him. Because honestly, it's been hard to watch him struggle at shortstop. Unfortunately, I think that the problem is that the situation where the Red Sox are in now, where this is basically a stretch where, you know, they're playing, and I mean this respectfully, they are playing teams with losing, with, you know, lackluster records and losing records. And this is a stretch where they have a chance to pad their record and to really show off. And even if, even if they are not playing teams that would be in the postseason, the, one of their biggest issues collectively this year has been their struggle to capitalize on the series against teams with bad records. They got swept by the Cardinals. The Cardinals were 13 and 25 when they came to Boston. They lost, I think, two out of three to the Rockies. They got swept by the Pirates. The Pirates had never swept a Boston Red Sox team at Fenway Park in franchise history. The only Boston baseball team that the Pirates had ever swept at Fenway before this April was the Boston Braves in like 1915 or 1916. Like, you know, you struggle against teams like the Rockies, teams like the Cardinals. You know, the Reds were not what they're, they are right now when they were here. Uh, you know, and you kind of look at that and you say, okay, so if this team can't beat bad teams where you're squandering these opportunities, you know, that's an issue. At the same time, they've actually been quite good against some teams that have way better records than them. So you're kind of like, could this team hang in the postseason if they got to the postseason? Because they just took two out of three from the Rangers and they're five and one against the Yankees. I I don't really know. It's it doesn't really make any sense. Nobody really understands what the hell is going on, which is kind of epic in a hilarious way. But the next, you know, week or so is a big kind of test for them of they came into the break, one of the hottest teams in baseball. Over the last month, they have factually been one of the best teams in baseball. And over the last month, they've lost three of their five starting pitchers. So that's an interesting, you know, thing to look at. And with the deadline coming up, you know, are you buyers this year? Are you sellers this year? Are you doing the hokey pokey like last year where you're half buyer, half seller? That didn't really work out. You kind of ended up with a similar situation that you would have probably had if you just stuck with what you had at the deadline. Uh, though the prospects acquired were pretty good. Um, I don't know. I'm very curious to see. There's a lot of arguments to be made. And my coworker and I did this for the Herald earlier in the month. You know, we argued, you know, both sides of it there's a big case to be made that this is a team that a year from now two years from now is one of the best teams in baseball because of the prospects that they have because of the talent that they are currently developing but because of guys like Bayo and Duran and Devers obviously and Casas and Masataka Yoshida like that there's a serious case to be like you wait two years this team is freaking insane they are lights out they are 2018 all over again this time homegrown and way cheaper uh, not that they can't afford to, to be 2018 every year, but, you know, there's also a case to be made that when you have talented guys on your team now, you know, everyone has one life. You're going to punt it and not give these guys a chance. I firmly believe every team should be trying if they have a chance. You know, if you're not the Oakland A's, if you're not 
I don't know, every other last place team in this, in this league, uh, you know, if you're a team that is above 500 and you are a few games out of the wild card hunt in July, you should be fighting. If the Red Sox weren't fighting in 2004, there may be a hundred plus year drought, you know, like I, I, I don't respect teams that basically not tank, but decide to throw in the towel in July when it's very clear that they could make something magical happen. You know, when you have Trevor Story set to come back, when Chris Sale is throwing, when Tanner Houck is throwing, like when you have promising minor leaguers that could help you, you, you know, you could get some, some crazy stuff done. The Red Sox were not supposed to sneak in in 2021. They not only snuck in, they were one win away from a pennant and a World Series appearance a year after being the worst team in their league. Like, I, part of me feels like you have to try. If they totally collapse in the next two weeks, I'm like, okay, like, I get it. You have people you could trade. But if they're this, if they sustain it the next two weeks and you don't go for it, I mean, the Red Sox in 2019 were pretty good at the deadline and not doing anything at the deadline took a lot of the wind out of their sails. And that's when they fell apart again. I mean, this is the same situation that the Cubs are in, admittedly, without the winning record that the Red Sox have. And it'll be really interesting to see these two teams face off as they're both sort of trying to make these decisions. I actually also just wrote the case for being buyers and the case for being sellers. The parallels here are super eerie. It has been incredible talking with you about my two favorite teams. Gabrielle, tell people where people can find you on Twitter, how they can find your work, how they can follow you during this historic Cubs-Red Sox series as both teams try to avoid selling at the deadline yet again. Remember when Twitter was fun? I do. It was great. Blue Sky is fun now. Blue Sky is fun now. I like Blue Sky. Um, Threads is interesting, but until one of them is the one that I check more than Twitter, you know, and I wish there was one, but I don't know. Um, so I'm at G-F-S-T-A-R-R-1 on Twitter and Blue Sky uh, on threads. I'm Starry Night 64 which is my Instagram as well. And then you can find me in the Boston Herald uh, online and in the paper um, and Girl at the Game, which is like, I haven't had a lot of time to keep it up this year, but um, I do love it and I'm very proud of it. Uh, and I loved having this talk with you. Um, and I'm sad that I don't get to like actually be with you at Wrigley for any of this. Cause that would be really fun. Um, but we'll do it next time. We'll do it next yeah. time. I, no, I, next I, year I'm, you have to come. I'm you overdue for a trip. I'm overdue for a trip to Boston. I have not been to Boston since I think 2019. And I, uh, I lived there for seven years. It's one of my favorite cities. I have a ton of friends there. So uh, next year, I will make that happen. You can find me at, at BCB underscore Sarah. Same on Blue Sky and Threads and whatever else we're trying to do to stay off of Elon Musk's site these days. You can follow my work at bleedcubbyblue.com. You can follow the podcast at, at Cup of Cubby Blue. This has been an extended show, but I think a great extended show. I'm so grateful for Gabrielle joining to talk all things baseball, Red Sox, Cubs, history, uh, Hein Bloom, Jed Hoyer, we covered it all. We will co- we will be back next time, um, Danny and I, not Gabrielle and I, to talk about what happened with this Cubs and Red Sox series, who came out ahead, and why. 
and all of the bleacher banter that you love. Until then.